You're listening to the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast, ASCP's journal come to life. Visit ASCP.com slash journal to read the articles and ASCP.com slash podcasts to listen to more author interviews. Hey, everyone. I'm Delon Canterbury, and today we are with Dr. Elizabeth Hoggy coming in live from the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast. Elizabeth, how are you today? Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So for those who do not know, Elizabeth is a cardiology pharmacist, and she's released an amazing article about geriatric pharmacotherapy regarding neurogenic orthostatic hypotension. So try to say that three times fast. So let's talk about that. You know, just before we dive into the article, what really got you into this world of handling neurogenic orthostatic hypotension? Yeah, so my practice area is in ambulatory care cardiology, and I practice in Sun City and Sun City West, so that's where the older adults go, right? So those are retirement communities. I like to say that my older adult population is 75 plus, not 65 plus. So we have a lot of very well elderly, and we see a lot of NOH in my practice. I'm in a private cardiology practice, and orthostatic hypotension is a big problem for our cardiologists. And a few years ago, they asked me if I could help, and I said, absolutely, I'd love to help. So we created a new service Mm -hmm. where we manage patients that have orthostatic hypotension. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. So for those who may not be familiar or just give us an overview but what is neurogenic orthostatic hypotension what's that look like yeah so orthostatic hypotension can fall under two categories so let's first of all define orthostatic hypotension so we're all on the same page this is when a patient goes from sitting to standing and their blood pressure systolic falls by at least 20 points and Mm. and or diastolic falls by 10 points okay so if this happens oftentimes patients will get dizzy and lightheaded Now, orthostatic hypotension can be neurogenic in origin or non-neurogenic in origin. We more commonly see non-neurogenic origin in primary care, primary practice, because this is really a disease state where our neuroreceptors can still, our norepinephrine still releases appropriately. And this is generally related to volume depletion or drug therapy. So these are more commonly reversible causes. Hmm, You can tell the difference between the two because non-neurogenic, the the heart rate goes up by 15 or more beats per minute when the patient goes from sitting to standing. That's our normal um, response in our body. So neurogenic is much more difficult to treat. That's what this article, the basis of this article is, is neurogenic orthostatic hypotension. So these patients don't have that norepinephrine release when they go from sitting to standing, or there's a problem with their neurogenic or autonomic system. And so then their heart rate doesn't elevate as much. So, you know, patients will go from sitting to standing and their heart rate will stay at 60, 65. Mm -hmm. And so, This is a more difficult to treat disease state because drug therapy is really more necessary as well as non-pharmacological therapy, which I've really highlighted in the article of being very important for our older adults too, because the drugs in this disease state have their problems and they, for a lot of patients, don't work very well. Mm. So, you know, just like any other thing in um, geriatric care, we always need to think about non-pharmacological therapy. Absolutely. great way of breaking it down. I think a lot of us want to know the difference between neurogenic and non-neurogenic. So speaking to that, we all love talking about de-prescribing. So using non-farm approaches is critical. What are some lifestyle approaches to managing this? Yeah. So when I take a patient and they come in, the first thing I look at is medications. 
right? Okay. Yeah. So what medications can contribute to lowering the blood pressure or are more likely to cause orthostatic hypotension? So right. when we think about drugs like beta blockers, non-selective agents like labetalol, carbetalol, those are much more likely to cause orthostatic hypotension mm -hmm. than a drug like metoprolol. Mm -hmm. So I try to get patients off of the non-selective beta blockers. I look at drugs that pull off extra fluid, right? In cardiology, we use a lot of diuretics. Sure. So loop diuretics are notorious for causing problems with orthostatic hypotension. And then some of the drugs that are on the beers list, like our alpha-1 blockers, those drugs obviously can cause problems as well. And then drugs that are not necessarily for blood pressure can sometimes cause orthostatic hypotension. Sometimes you can see it with tricyclic antidepressants or some other drugs that patients are on for other disease states, like antipsychotics. You know, there's a lot of different things that we can kind of look at and let's get rid of unnecessary medications. I understand that deprescribing is something that you enjoy doing as well, right? Yeah. So yeah. whenever we can get patients off of medications, that's always a wonderful thing, right? Absolutely. A win-win-win for everybody. Yes. I love it. So speaking to what the patient can do. Are there any like dietary measures or any approaches they can do to avoid this? Sure. Yeah. So within the article, I actually have a few appendices that are really nice to be able to print out and give to patients for patient education. So some of the patient education parameters that we talk to patients about are increasing their sodium. That can always help. Yep. Increasing their fluids. So older adults oftentimes aren't getting enough adequate hydrating fluids, right? Oh, yeah. So right. we want to make sure they're drinking 48 to 56 ounces of hydrating fluids a day. So not just coffee or not just alcohol or you know reducing those dehydrating fluids and having more hydrating fluids. Abdominal binders, interestingly enough, have a lot of evidence to hmm. support their use in this disease state. Yeah. I find that patients have a really difficult time using those. They don't like them. It feels very restrictive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and then it's just like compression stockings too. You know, we tell patients compression stockings can help, but oftentimes patients don't want to do those. Sure. Right. They're uncomfortable. I live in Arizona. It's hot. <laughs> right? yep, yep. So patients are like, oh my gosh, it's so hot. I hate these mm -hmm. stockings or I hate this abdominal binder. So while those can be helpful, patients oftentimes aren't very compliant with it. Okay. And then simple lifestyle things like getting up slowly from when you're sitting to standing, being very careful when you're getting up in the middle of the night, when you have to go to the bathroom, maybe using a bedside commode instead of actually going to the restroom, yeah, making those one. suggestions for patients can yeah. oftentimes be helpful because oftentimes falls occur in the middle of the night. And with this disease state, there's kind of two things that we worry about. We worry about falling, right? And then we also worry about elevated blood pressure at night. Because when a patient lays down at night, especially if we're giving them pharmacotherapy to increase their blood pressure, their blood pressure can actually elevate when they're laying in a supine position. And so that can increase their risk for stroke. So uh -huh. we try to not give drugs overnight, mm -hmm. if at all possible, in this disease state. So patients really need to be careful in that overnight time period. Wow. Definitely did not know about the supine and increased risk of stroke at that time. Yeah. That interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. So, you know, one some ways you can help with that is head of the bed can be elevated mm -hmm. by 30 to 40 degrees. Yeah. Or sleeping more reclined can help with some of that elevated blood pressure at night. And then we always tell patients to do their blood pressures overnight a few times to just make sure that we're catching it if there is any problems with that. And then the dosing of the drugs for this disease state, it's really important to make sure you're dosing them about five to six hours prior to bedtime so that you don't have a lot of mitodrine in the, in the 
system overnight. Okay, okay. And while you just said the magic word, let's talk about the medicines to treat this, the actual pharmacology and what do they do and what are your kind of favorite go-tos when it comes to this? Yeah, so most patients will come to you when they have Um, orthostatic symptoms or they have orthostatic hypotension on kind of our oldies but goodies, right? Mm -hmm. We use a lot of midodrine or mitodrine and that drug has a really nice place in therapy for orthostatic hypotension. I oftentimes also see patients on fludrocortisone. Mm-hmm. So we talk about fludrocortisone, if you really think mechanistically, that's going to increase sodium, increase water retention. That really works a lot better for our non-neurogenic orthostatic okay. hypotension because okay. that's a fluid issue, a volume depletion issue. Right. So for this particular patient, she came to me on mitodrine, fludrocortisone, and then pyrostigmine, which actually has very limited evidence in this disease state, but she was very difficult to treat. And so they had put her on those um, three medications. And then the drug that we oftentimes forget about, which is kind of highlighted in this article, is the droxidopa. So that goes by the brand name of Nothera. And that's really a, a norepinephrine precursor. Okay. And so we forget about that drug. And maybe you're not even familiar with that medication because it's not utilized very often in practice. <laughs> nope. But its only utilization is really neurogenic orthostatic hypotension. It's a great drug for this disease state because it's like a norepinephrine precursor and can really help get at what's happening with the patient. And so that drug can be started low and titrated up and is a really nice drug to use in patients that have neurogenic orthostatic hypotension. Interesting, interesting. So didn't anticipate so much importance around fluid. So I was curious if you've ever worked with patients who may be already struggling with that, like heart failure patients. Is Mm. this something that can happen in that population? And what do you have to prepare for in that world? Yeah, so I deal, I manage a lot of heart failure in my practice. Mm. And heart failure is an interesting world because the drugs to treat heart failure oftentimes cause a lot of volume depletion. And so I use the analogy with my patients of we're walking on a tightrope. Okay, And so as we walk on this tightrope, we think about we can't go too far into the too much fluid because then you'll get fluid overloaded. But if we go the other way into little of fluids, we pull too much fluid off of you. And however means we're doing that, then you get low blood pressure, you end up in the hospital, fall, emergency room, etc. So heart failure is a very big balancing act, in my opinion. It requires a lot of patient education in order to manage those loop diuretics appropriately. Provider, I do a lot of provider education on how loop diuretics work. Mm -hmm. This is getting a little bit off of kind of the discussion we're having here, but, you know, a lot of my providers don't understand the pharmacokinetics of loop diuretics, Hmm. you know, and that they're on a sigmoidal curve Hmm. or in kind of an S-shaped curve, if you can visualize that. And when we take a loop diuretic, we need to get to a threshold in order to elicit a response. And so if we are not at the threshold, we're really just causing adverse effects and we're not eliciting an appropriate response for our patient. And so we need to make sure our loop is appropriate I say, loops aren't lazy, right? (laughs) You take a loop, it works. Loops aren't lazy, right? They're not lazy. I tell my patients that a loop diuretic is not a lazy drug. (laughs) Over four to six hours, you should have extra urine output. It should be noticeable. If your loop gets lazy, you need to call me because that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. I love that. They are not lazy. All right. (laughs) So what were some kind of key takeaways from this case you went over in this article around this? Was there any aha moments for you or kind of the next steps you want to use in your practice going forward or... 
Yeah, so I think a few things that we published within the article that might be nice for readers is we do have two appendix. So those are can be printed out and they're at the end of the article that provide patient education and are meant to kind of give readers another tool in their toolbox to maybe educate patients with or to educate providers with if they're working in a long-term care pharmacy or those types of things. And so these two appendix, I think, are really helpful for patients. So that was one of my kind of takeaway things and why we published those. The Geriatric Pharmacotherapy Case Series is really an educational series. So when we're looking at the journal as a whole, you know, we want these publications to be very educational for our readership. And so maybe you have a patient out there who has a little orthostatic hypotension. What are some things that you can do to help? And so utilizing publications like this as a resource and maybe just taking a few of the lifestyle things or the self-care, or maybe you need to jump into the drugs and maybe you need to figure out how do I dose these things? What are some key takeaways that I need to use when I'm looking at fludrocortisone? Fludrocortisone is an interesting drug because it can lower potassium. And so that was something that we highlighted in this case with this particular patient is um, after they started fludrocortisone, her potassium reduced. And so we need to remember those things. She had been on pyrostigmine and she had significant urinary incontinence. So that was causing a lot of problems, right? Making her disease states worse. So I think there's several key things that this patient experienced that I think are really nice learning points for us as pharmacists. I didn't go into this patient knowing what to do. Right? Right. You know, some of our patients are difficult. This was a hard to treat patient. Her blood pressure when I first saw her reduced by 50 points when she stood up. And I'm thinking, holy cow, what am I going to do with this lady? Mm. And so um, there was a, this really kind of highlights the pharmacist's role and how I was able to really help her and help her improve her quality of life. I still keep in touch with this lady. Yeah, she's one of my favorite patients. She actually asked me to send her the publication. She was super excited (laughs) that I was facing a publication off her. I I, um, emailed it to her uh, yesterday. Oh, excellent. So that was kind of a fun full circle moment for me uh, when you can make these relationships with patients. That's the best part, you know, having that type of connection and then seeing it through even after, you know, with the follow-up and having them see the impact that they can have in other cases, you know, that's excellent. Yeah. When a patient comes to you and says, you know, doctor, call me Dr. Elizabeth, you know, Dr. Elizabeth, you have listened to me and helped me more than any other provider in the last 20 years. I mean, that is really, really powerful and it shows what pharmacists can do. Mm -hmm. And it makes me so excited and so happy to be a pharmacist when I can spend the time with these patients and help them to the degree that I can. You know, our older adults really need our help. They're very complex. And sometimes providers don't have time. You know, this spent, I spent a lot of time researching and learning about NOH when uh, this patient came to my practice. She was one of my, my first NOH management patients. And so I learned along with her. And we came to a successful outcome. I love it. I love it. This was amazing. So many pearls in here. So I do encourage you all to read this case series and print those two appendixes. Were there any final thoughts or how are you liking ASCP so far? How's the conference going? Yeah, we're here at the annual meeting. I'm really excited to be here. I have a poster today, so I'm excited about that. And then I'm going to be speaking on Sunday about another one of my loves, anticoagulation. 
Ooh, nice. I don't want to miss that. Yeah. Uh, definitely not my strong suit. <laughs> so yeah. I will check that out for sure. Okay. Well, with that, I cannot lie. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you, getting to know this amazing case. And thank you all for tuning in. Again, I am Dr. Delon Canterbury with Dr. Elizabeth Pogi. You're listening to the Senior Care Pharmacist Podcast, ASCP's journal come to life. Visit ASCP.com slash journal to read the articles and ASCP.com slash podcast to listen to more author interviews.